0: And and we will read God's inerrant, Holy Spirit-inspired Word together. Titus 3, beginning in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this word we thank you for this passage and we thank you for the privilege that you've granted us to be able to gather together this evening around your word. This is what we need Lord. This is what we need more than we need dinner tonight or sleep in our beds tonight. God, we need to feed on your word. We need to feed on our Savior. And God, I pray that you would fill us with him this evening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know I need to follow Jesus, and I really want to. But I've got to change the way I'm living first. I've had this conversation with two different college students this semester, both times they have said something very similar, I know I need to, and I really want to, I hear what you're saying, but I just feel like I really need to get my life together first, I need to clean up a little, I need to stop drinking, I need to stop doing some of the things that I'm doing, and the reasoning is obvious. Why would God accept me like this? Why would God accept me when I'm so dirty? When I'm so unacceptable? This mindset should make sense to us. Because I believe that this is how we often think about one another. We think about accepting other people or who are going to be our friends and then we often project ourselves upon, upon God. I was struck this week by an article that I read and the title of the article was Orphan Goes to Church and Asks Someone, Anyone, to Adopt Him. You might have seen it. And it was about a 15-year-old African-American young man named Davian Only. And he heard a message And the message he heard was that God helps those who help themselves. And so once he heard that, he decided that he was going to do everything he could to get a family for himself. Since God helps those who help themselves, he was going to start helping himself. And so he began dieting. He lost 40 40 pounds. He began making good grades. He got himself dressed up And then he went to the one place he thought someone would want him. He went to a church. And he pleaded. And he told them his story. Davion, at 15 years old, is what the adoption experts would call a special need child. And the reason why they would label him special need is because at the age of 15 they realize that it's going to be very difficult to find a family that wants him. So he's a special needs case. Paul is compelled in this letter to remind Titus, to remind the church that God isn't like you and me when it comes to people. He's compelled that we realize, that we understand, that we remind ourselves the way God is, because it's nothing like the way we are. He's compelled to remind us that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we're able to come to God. In fact, we could not do that even if we tried. We're too dirty. And the pollution of our hearts is much deeper than for our shallow understandings to think that we can just root it out. In God's economy, we are all special needs cases. And guess what? He still wants us. He still wants us. Paul wants the church to remember this. The church needed this reminder. The church in Crete needed to hear this because false teachers had come in and their message was, Jesus isn't enough. He's not enough. You need to do more. You need to do more. He's a good start. But if you really want to be accepted by God, there's some rules over here you need to obey. There's some regulations you need to keep. There's some other things you need to do. And if you do all of those things, then you will be a part of this community. Then you will be accepted into this people. So Paul's countering that here. And this is something that the church continually needs to remind ourselves of. This is the reality that by which we live. This is our constant tendency to drift towards a performance mentality. To begin, even after we've become Christians and even after we've believed the gospel, to somehow begin to think that our relationship with Christ is based upon our own performance. Paul writes to tell us that that's a lie. Paul begins in this section of his letter to Titus by commanding the church to do good. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. If you'll remember, as we looked and studied last week in chapter two, verses one through ten, Paul focused there on instructing the church on how to behave with one another in the community. He gave them rules for the household of God, how the gospel is to shape the way we live amongst one another. He's calling. He's calling the church to a certain kind of community that pictures the gospel. And it's a type of community that lives harmoniously with one another. And that is to to characterize this community here when we gather in the church. But it is also to characterize our little communities at home. Amongst our families. But here in chapter 3, Paul's moving beyond that. He is now moving into society. See, he's not only concerned with what we do on Sundays, he's not only concerned with what we do when we gather together. Paul says that the gospel has implications for every inch of your life. There's no aspect of our life that can remain untouched by this wonderful life-transforming message. And so in verses 1 and 2, he begins to instruct us on how we are to live in society. The gospel is trying to make us into a certain type of citizen. the type of citizen that is submissive to rulers and authorities. Now if you'll remember, Paul had called wives to be submissive to their own husbands. He had called slaves in chapter 2, verse 9, to be submissive to their own masters. And now he is calling all of us to be submissive to the ruling authorities or the government that God has, in His wisdom, put over us. And I think that we focus a lot, possibly exclusively, On the home submission aspect, the church submission aspect, but it's important for us to remember as Christians that every single one of us is called to live in submission to authority. All of us are. In fact, this is a theme that comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament. It becomes quite apparent that in the mind of God, learning to submit to God-ordained authority is a key element of our sanctification. You need authority in your life if you are going to look like Jesus. That's the point. And so here we are being called to submit to rulers and authorities. And he continues to be obedient He's still speaking about the government here. And it's striking that in this passage, Paul does not put any qualifications. Now we learn from Acts chapter 5 verse 29 that there are certainly times when one must choose to obey God rather than man. If the governing governing authorities would ever command us to do things that violate the expressed will of God as he has stated clearly in his word, then we are to choose to obey God rather than man. But other than that, if it's just something you don't like, something you don't want to do. You and I are people under submission and the way we respond to those authorities represents the way we respond to God because he is the one who put those authorities in place. He continues at the end of verse one, not only are we to be submissive to rulers and authorities, not only are we to be obedient, but we are also to be ready for every good work. There is an urgency in these words, diligence. We are to be ready. We are to be attentive. We are to aggressively pursue. We are to be active in seeking out ways to do good. This is really important. So many of us live with the mentality of, I would do good if I ever get the opportunity. If the opportunity arises, I will help others. I will benefit society. If I see someone in need and that's clear that that's God's will for me, then I will go in that direction. But the language Paul is using here is much stronger than that. Christians aren't people who just sit back and wait for something to do, wait for some opportunity to come before us. We are to be actively seeking to benefit others. Doing good is to be a part of our regular life. Paul says this is life that is consistent with the gospel. In verse 14, if you'll flip with me to that verse here. Paul defines what this looks like a little more for us. In in his final instructions of this letter, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. A life that is consistent with the truth of God, a life that is consistent with the doctrine of God, a life that is consistent with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a life that is actively pursuing to help people in urgent need. And those opportunities are all around us. We live in a world with millions of orphans, we exist in a, in a church with widows, with people who are hospitalized. There are opportunities weekly, even daily, for us to seek out ways to do good in the church and in society. This is not an option for us. But Paul continues with his instructions for society in verse 2. He gives us another list of commands. And he says here, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now this would have certainly included government that Paul was talking about in verse 1, but it seems that in verse 2 he is speaking more broadly than just government. We are to live in society as good citizens, as people who benefit the people around us. And how do we benefit them? Well, we certainly don't slander them. We certainly don't pick fights with them. We seek to be gentle with them and we seek to be courteous and hospitable, Paul says, toward all people. I'm afraid that sometimes we read these sections of Scripture and our immediate response is to begin thinking of all the reasons why we shouldn't obey this command. Perhaps we're the exception. Well, I know Paul wrote this, but Paul doesn't understand what we're going through. Paul doesn't understand what our government's like. Paul, Paul didn't have to deal with this government, this corrupt system. Do you know, have you ever thought of the fact that this government was probably worse than our own? Have you ever thought of the fact that these people were struggling to do these very things or else Paul wouldn't have had to have kept reminding the churches to do it? They were struggling. They were living under governments that were corrupt. They were living under governments that made it hard to be a Christian. And yet Paul still pins these instructions and he pins these instructions in letter after letter after letter. They had it worse and eventually eventually the church that Paul's writing to was going to face massive persecution. And we have to remember when we're tempted to not submit to our government That the call is not dependent upon the government's righteousness. The call to submit and live this manner of life is dependent upon the righteousness of God. This is God's standard. And it does not honor Christ to slander government or anyone else, regardless of how much you disagree. But Paul's not content with just giving us ethical instructions as we've already seen. Paul always wants to ground those ethical instructions in the gospel. He wants us to understand why. Are you to do good in society? Absolutely. But Paul says, understand why. Look with me at verse 3-8. through eight. Verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You see, Paul here is anticipating logic. He's anticipating an objection. He's anticipating, after those instructions, he's anticipating the response of the church to be But how can we submit to evil, wicked people? How can we seek to show kindness to people who are so pointedly against us? It goes against everything within us. And Paul is anticipating this objection. And his point in verse 3 is, have you forgotten? He's asking the question, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten who you were? Have you forgotten that you used to be foolish, disobedient, led astray? You weren't slaves to God. You were slaves to your various passions and pleasures. You passed your days in malice and envy. You hated others and you hated one another. That's the condition that you and I were in when God found us that's where we were we were not desirable we were not adoptable we were not lovable we were not cute God didn't find us and and pick us up and go oh look how precious you are he saw us in our disgust and he saw us in our sin and Paul says and yet verse 4 But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He saved us. This is based not on our lovability. This is based on the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God. This word could even be translated the friendship of God. The friendship of God. God determined to be friends with the people described in verse 3. He determined that he was going to love people like you and me. And so Paul is making the point. He's making the connection because all of this is in response to verses 1 and 2. And the point that he's wanting to make is that to refuse to live peacefully in society, to refuse to submit to the governing authorities, to refuse to live as this type of citizen is to forget the gospel. If you can't live peacefully in society, you are not able to remember the gospel. Our good works are always in response to God's goodness to us. God's goodness to us always precedes our good works. And not only that, but implicit in this argument is the reality that this is how God manifests His goodness in the world. When we live peacefully... When we live in submission, when we live doing good to others around us, God is revealing himself. He is manifesting himself. He is showing himself through his people to be the kind of God that saves these kind of sinners. And so we are to be involved in these types of ministries. These types of good works. This type of living because it makes the gospel intelligible. Davian, only the 15 year old orphan who went to church, should have never made it to 15 years old. And he certainly shouldn't have made it out of that church that day. Because we are the people, of all the people on the face of the earth, who know what it means to have nothing to offer but for God to love us anyway. We know what that's like. That's us. That's our story. That's why we're sitting in these pews right now. That's why we have hope. That's why we have eternal life. That's why we have anything. Because we were unwanted. We were unadoptable. And yet God loved us. And so when we look out at the world and we see people who are unadoptable, when we see people who aren't lovely, when we see people who don't have anything to offer us, we should be drawn to those type of people. It's the love of Christ. Paul wants us to get the order right. Verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants to make it very clear. He saved us, and this was not because of works done by us in righteousness. Our works are the result of God's love. They are not the cause of God's love. You can never, I can never clean myself up enough to present myself before God so that He will accept me. The only way He will ever accept anyone is when we come to Him solely on the basis of of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his atoning death for us. That's the only way it happened. It can ever happen because it's the he's the only one that has righteousness that's good enough to be accepted. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer, and yet Christ came and He lived a perfect life and He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And He died on a bloody cross. And He rose from the grave, defeating death and making atonement for all of our sins. And He says, I am willing to trade places with you. I am willing to give you my righteousness. Even as I take your sin upon myself, I am willing to bear the wrath of my Father so that you can be accepted. Paul says that's what it's about. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul here wants us to see that salvation is Trinitarian. And so he references every member of the Godhead. He saved us, the Father, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to the Father, His own mercy. How did He do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of, of eternal life, all three members of the Godhead are at work to bring us to the point where we can inherit salvation from God. We are washed, we are cleansed, we are showered because the righteousness comes from outside and not only are we declared righteous in the courtroom, But when Paul begins talking about us and referencing us in verse 7 as heirs according to the hope of eternal life, he is referencing our adoption. We, We are not just declared not guilty. We are invited in. We are adopted. We are now part of the family. We are now able to call the Creator of the universe Abba, Father. He is concerned for us down to the intricate details of our lives. Because he loves us as our father. Paul says this is what grounds the call to live a certain kind of life. And in verse 8, he makes it explicit. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There he goes. He references good works again. So he's framing this whole section in this reference to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The point is that there is a connection between the gospel and good works. You cannot separate a people who believe in the Gospel from good works. You show me a church where good works are lacking and I'll show you a people who have ceased treasuring the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And vice versa. You show me a a people who treasures the Gospel and I will show you a people who are diligently seeking To show good works. Who are diligently looking for people in urgent need to help. Who are pooling their resources together. And opening their homes. And showing hospitality. So that they can benefit the people that need in society. Because they know what it's like to be in need. But finally. Paul in verses 9 through 11. says says oppose evil so we are to do good we are to understand why we are to do good and in verses 9 through 11 he tells us that we are to oppose evil verse 9 but avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless Paul here is returning back to the false teachers in the church who are seeking to split up, to divide, to separate what God has joined together. They are seeking to to disunite what God has united. As God has reconciled this people together, these false teachers by their false teaching, by their foolish controversies and emphasis on things that don't really matter, they are unprofitable and worthless. And Paul calls the church to avoid such Foolishness. And he speaks in even stronger language in verses 10 and 11. As he says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person, person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul has a zero-tolerance policy toward division in the church and you and I should be the same way why why does Paul oppose division so strongly why does he guard the unity of the church so carefully and let me tell you why it's because in Paul's mind the gospel is all about reconciliation we know that God the just, righteous, holy Creator of the universe. We are separated from Him because of our sin and the pollution of our hearts. And so He reconciles us to Himself by the shed blood of His Son. But we need to be careful that we don't end the story there. In reconciling sinners to Himself, He is also reconciling sinners to one another. The Gospel is uniting people who would have never gotten together if it were up to us. The Gospel is taking people who used to be enemies. It is taking people who used to say they had nothing in common with one another. It's taking people who would have never chosen to hang out together. Who would have never chosen to share a mission. And it's bringing us under the same umbrella. It's bringing us into the very body of Jesus Christ. The gospel is reconciling us into one another, and to mess with that reconciliation is to deny the very gospel we say we believe. To cause division in the body is to oppose the very purposes of God in the universe, to make his glory known through the reconciliation of a people, of a family. Our policy must be the same as the Apostle Paul's. We must not tolerate division. We must not tolerate whispers in dark corners. We must not tolerate gossip and slander. And we must not only give ear to it, but when we hear it, we must oppose it aggressively. That is the voice of Satan. And it wants to take down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity of the body of the church is one of the strongest indicators of the power of the Gospel in the universe. The reality that these people, these different types of people, these different races, these different people from These people from this side of the tracks and these people from this side of the tracks. The reality that we can come together united under the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way it could ever happen and it testifies to the power of the gospel and we must guard it with our lives. In verses 12 through 15, Paul gives his final instructions to young Titus. And they are very personal instructions. We're going to read them together. He says in verse 12, "...when I send Artemis Articicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful." All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. These personal concerns give us a window into the heart of the Apostle Paul. Even as he closes this letter to Titus about his specific concerns for this specific island of congregations, he is never satisfied he always wants the mission to go further he's always thinking ahead he's always thinking about what's next his zeal for the glory of the Lord is exciting and compelling his mind is on the mission and just as he began this letter with grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, so He ends this letter. Grace be with you all. And it's an appropriate conclusion. because if we are going to be the type of church that he's describing in this letter, if we are going to be a church that's characterized by life and by health and by freedom and by good, we are going to need the grace of God from the beginning. To the, to the end. All the way home to glory. Let's pray.